In this episode, we talk the Lexus Performance Driving School, examine the LX600 as the Lexus flagship SUV, and we take a look at changes coming to the ES this week on the Lexus Enthusiast Podcast. Kevin Watts, founder of Lexus Enthusiast, and as always, Michael Pannone, executive editor. How are you doing today, Mike? Hey, Kevin. I'm doing pretty well. How about you? Yeah, pretty good. Considering the uh, the current situation of Alexis news, I think we <laughs> are going to instead talk purely about our renovations. <laughs> Great. <Don't>. Welcome, <laughs> welcome to the Renovation Enthusiast podcast. Yeah, um, I know we both have plenty to say on that subject. And it's probably <laughs> a lot more interesting. <laughs> Well, you know, like I have a lot of strong opinions about tile versus luxury vinyl in the bathroom, mm. but we do have some stuff to talk about. Let's not pretend. I mean, you know, like it's up and down. It's always it's always up and down with Lexus, right? Yeah. Like this period that we're in right now, we knew was going to come after the debut of like 13 electric concepts, right? Like yeah. in January, we were like, holy shit, this is amazing. The next few weeks and months of Lexus news are going to be rich. Yeah. And what has happened since then? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I don't necessarily know why they did have all of those concepts. I was expecting a lot more around that, but I think it does go to show that the introduction of all those concepts really took everybody by surprise. Yeah. Not just everybody in the media and all the enthusiasts out there, but people working right in Lexus. I don't think anybody was really truly prepared for the amount yeah. of stuff that was going on. And you and I have talked about this stuff, but I mean, my like my day job is in media and marketing and PR. And, and so I'm like, to come out with like 13 concepts like that, like the media model for something like that would be to have as huge of an introduction as possible, you know, blow it up, own the media cycle for a couple days. And then in the weeks after that, you do profiles and focuses on like each of those models, like, close, yeah. like close looks, videos, you know, new photos, like things yeah. like that. And they did like what, one or two of them with the sports car and the mm -hmm. LFA. And that's yeah. it. Yeah. And I mean, all they did really was release a gallery of photos, no video. I was expecting, you know, video profiles. I think that that really would have went over well. Yeah. And I mean, I'm of course that's coming. There's no question about it. But with such a huge change coming to Lexus, there's going to be this schism between what exists now and what they want to exist. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to be a very complicated process within Lexus to figure out. I mean, high level, everybody would know what was happening. But as it filters down into the, the next levels of the company and, and implementation and activation, I think they're really going to need a lot of time to figure out how this is all going to work. And mm -hmm. it's just one of those times that I was expecting a lot and nothing really happened. I think you also made the point when we talked about all the electric concepts and stuff that was essentially what we're looking at now is sort of a stopgap period for Lexus. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, if you make the announcement that you're moving towards a strategy of all electric and that's the future, then it sort of puts the current in a little bit of a weird position because right. it feels like it's, you know, not to say not important because we're to people like me, these are probably going to be some of the best and most exciting products like the IS 500. But yeah, you know, it's just sort of like, all right, I guess we'll sit around and wait for everything to be electric. <laughs> 
When you look at Lexus as it exists right now, it's really probably one of the farthest luxury brands away from going full electric. They have these like core engines that are as far away from electric as possible, notwithstanding the hybrid powertrains. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you have this old school IS500. You've got this giant LX with the twin turbo V6. Like these these vehicles are not really very close no. to electric vehicles. And LC is another one that's very yeah, exactly. like, how would that translate? You know? Yeah. So there really is like a lot that Lexus needs to get through in order to pave the way for this new generation of vehicle. You know, one of the things that probably most greatly shows the state of Lexus being in transition is this multimedia change. I think that you're absolutely right. The rumor that just came out uh, last week was that the ES is going to be receiving interior changes that will eliminate the remote touch, but this is not going to be part of a full redesign. They're really just going to remove remote touch and what redesign the cup holders. The cup holder area, yeah. And that's the first time Lexus has ever done anything like that. And especially right on the heels of such a huge interior upgrade to the ES, you know, just last year. The article that we read said specifically that this change would happen for the ES, the UX and the IS, that they would all be essentially ditching remote touch. And it makes sense, right? Like Mm -hmm. if all the cars have touch screens now, like how many people do you think are really using remote touch? Well. I think it's incredible that if you buy a Lexus that isn't the NX or the LX, like you're getting remote touch. So I think what that means on the flip side of it, too, is speaking again of this sort of like stopgap Lexus solution. We know that RX and TX and GX and RZ, and I guess I would have to assume also LS based on its life cycle, are getting pretty close to full model changes. So... I think, you know, ES might have another two years, potentially, like the rumor is the IS will go until 2025, I think, or 2024. And then the UX, I think, just had its mid life cycle update. So I guess what it really breaks down is like the models that have a couple more years and may not quickly receive Lexus interface are getting this revision of remote touch that removes the controller. I'm pretty pumped about that. Yeah. And I mean, that's another thing, though. I mean, the flip, like you say, like the flip side of it is almost spells out the the cadence of of the next generation of Lexus vehicles. Mm -hmm. It'll be interesting to see how they do it. I think that's the big thing too, is when they did redesign, when they refreshed the ES interior, I don't know, the screen moved like significantly closer to Mm -hmm. the driver. Um, Same thing when I drove the IS, like I only used the touchscreen. Like I didn't use remote touch at all. And I haven't been in a UX in a long time, but I think that's why they're doing it is they all have touchscreens. People are using the touchscreens because they're easier. So let's go ahead and remove remote touch and give these people the cup holders they desire. Okay. Okay. All right. Yeah. See, yeah. like I didn't, I didn't look at it that way. I was thinking more like a, more of a full center console redesign, but you're, we're probably actually just looking at them pulling those out and then redesigning the area around that. I think that's what it is, but mm-hmm. who knows? It's, it's still rumors and I guess we'll find out over the next couple months. Oh yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I, I fell into the trap of thinking rumors were reality. not always the case uh, as we've seen over the years uh one of the other things though that came out of that was the announcement that they're going to remove the the blue halo of the hybrid uh, lexus badges on the outside and i uh you know not going to spend too much time on this but i thought it was interesting you know there has been a move towards a, a full logo as opposed to just a chrome piece like we're not seeing like the paint coming through the badge it's mm-hmm. you know 
it's it's actually like a full logo and it really brings to mind about how lexus has positioned their hybrid vehicles as something that was special for like so long that it deserved to be highlighted in this way and i think that this move is a change long coming i don't think that you can position hybrids as anything else but another powertrain that's available the way that they used to do it they were like separate models almost Mm -hmm. it never really made much sense and i'm glad to see them uh moving away from that i agree i get stuck on some of the details sometimes and like you know every now and then when you'd go and seeing like a really nice like black gs450h or like a really slick like white rx hybrid or something like the car looks so nice and i personally thought the blue around the badges looked a little bit cheap Mm -hmm. i understand them doing it because a lot i know that toyota especially has done research on this over the years because they've shared it in press releases and stuff but people like to feel like when they buy a hybrid it's a little bit different like you remember how like for a while the hybrid highlander had like a different grill and different taillights and you know like the hybrid the gsh had a different grill and different wheels so people sometimes people who buy hybrids like to feel special i want you people to be able to have your moment (laughs) Um, but i also like we're just coming to a point where it's like everything's going to be hybrid soon so it's not the specialness of it i guess is different and it's kind of gone well, I even remember back with the, the first generation uh, GS450H, like even the, the headlights were different. Mm-hmm. They had that remember, blue tint, remember? Yeah, they had that blue tint. Like you said, like the grill. And then remember where they went with that shield? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> remember the shield on the LS600H? <laughs> yeah, that was rough. That was really rough. Well, they did eventually uh, just transport that onto the LX, right? So, um. oh, yeah. <laughs> or like I saw, um, I watched the Throttle House review of the LX600 and the LX470. And mm-hmm. they were like, Lexus is now selling fences. You just get the car <laughs> for free. <laughs> so... But it's cool, too, because I think part of the thing with hybrid stuff is we're continuing to see Lexus streamline their design language, which I always think is a good thing. Yeah. You know, in the past, we'd have different looking models, different looking trims, like there wasn't a whole lot of cohesion across the lineup. And I think they're continuing to get better at creating a family resemblance and brand identity. So I'm for it. On the other end of the spectrum from hybrids, talking about burning as much gas as possible. (laughs) Perfect. Perfect segue. Yeah, I went to the Lexus Performance Driving School and it was an absolute blast. And I know you've been too. Yeah. So where did you go? You went, what was the track? We went to Road Atlanta. It's like the full name is like Michelin Raceway Road Atlanta, I believe. Yeah. So yeah. And it was pouring rain the entire time. So that actually made things even more interesting. But I think I learned more in those conditions. Yeah, so. it is tr- it's true because you do kind of explore the outer limits of a, a performance vehicle when you're driving in the rain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, true, you really do. Yeah, you really do. And so just break down the event for us. You know, I know that, like you said, I attended one, but there's yeah. different s- sections, segments of, of the yes. day. So, and you might have to help me with this. A lot right. has happened since then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but so the, like you get split up into teams and there are competitions, uh, yep. essentially. So the first one was an exercise in how you follow the lines on a racetrack, like where you break in an apex, where you accelerate, mm-hmm. things like that. That part of it, I got to say, was really interesting. Like, yeah. I mean, I guess like everybody, I'm probably going to say, I think I'm a pretty good driver, but I had no idea about that stuff. And right. you, when you get out there on the track, again, especially in the rain, 
you can really feel it like loading the front of the car when you're about to come into a turn for grip and stuff like that. So it was really cool. And I definitely think I came away a better driver after that. Yeah. So we had that. Um, so then that was obviously followed by track sessions. There was a an IS 500 basically autocross circuit and yes. those were timed. Yeah. Yes. And all the teams like competed against each other. So yes. that was a blast. Yes. Love that. And it, that was like that's also one of those moments where you stand back and like when you are watching somebody throw an IS 500 down a straightaway and then break literally like at the last quarter of a second to make a yeah. 90 degree turn and the car just hangs on and does all of it. You're like, that's when you, that one of those moments where you're like, these cars are capable of a lot more than I think they oh, are. 100%. Yeah. So those were timed. And then there was a drifting circuit with RCFs. Right. That was also fun. I, I couldn't master it if I'm being totally honest, but it was a lot of fun. It was a great time. So were you partnered up with people uh, while you were driving? No, no, I was cut loose. We, I mean, we, so we would kind of go in like heats. So we would go out like three, four cars at a time on the mm-hmm. track for the hold the line and like braking and acceleration yeah. maneuvers. The IS 500 autocross runs were individual because they were yeah. timed. And then the RCF, I guess part of it's because of COVID too. Wait, because right. of course, when you went, was it in COVID yeah, or not? Yeah, pre-COVID. Yeah. Okay. So the only one that was, I would say, difficult was the RCF drifting thing. So it was like a flat parking lot and they were like throwing water down out there after every yeah. car would go. So it was wet and you had a walkie talkie in your car. And then the like, there's be someone watching you with a walkie talkie. <laughs> Yeah, like so trying to give you, yeah, trying to give you advice, and yeah. you know, so they're like the, all the all the stability systems in the car are turned off, and they're like, you know, all right, tap the throttle harder, go, okay, let off, <laughs> tap the throttle now harder, more, stop, okay, too much, no, so like, and honestly, I just I got kind of overwhelmed, just turned it off. <laughs> I, I mean, I wish, like, I kept trying, but it was like. I don't know. I'm not I'm not that coordinated of a person. Like I can't yeah. rollerblade. I can't ice skate. So for what that's worth. Anyway, yeah. they're like flip flip the steering wheel, tap the throttle, let off, hit it more, do less, too much. Now you're spinning. Yeah. <laughs> I just I went I, I mean I tried it, whatever each person had, like five minutes and I couldn't get it. And I was like, this this is not it for me. I'm not meant for drifting. I will not be on a Fast and Furious franchise. Yeah. Well, I I actually remember that and thinking like, oh, this is a total throw in, right? Like this yeah. is just like I loved I loved the autocross. So was Scott Pruitt there? Yes, he was. Did he set the the bar? Oh, for sure. It was funny because I think what car did you guys do for your autocross? It was uh, GSFs. Okay. Yeah. Jealous. So anyway, everybody, I think my best time was like 32 or 33 seconds. And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people were in the realm of like 30 to like 35. And so then at the end of it, you could, you know, Scott was taking people on rides and Scott's <laughs> Scott's lap times were like 26 seconds. And I'm and yeah. so four seconds off of 30 doesn't sound like that long when you're listening to somebody talk about it. Yeah. But when you are watching somebody fly around a racetrack, like it is an eternity of difference. Yeah. And it's like literally there just are moments where you're like the wheels the tires are going to fly off the wheels of this car. And they like it's I have so much more respect for the IS 500 after that. It was a blast. And Scott just absolutely rings it out. Yeah, I was actually looking back. I wrote a story about my my time there. One of the things I focused on in the story was this uh, was me trying to get under like 38 seconds. Mm hmm. So that I could be like in the upper third of the yep. table. Like so that's all I really wanted was like, I knew I wasn't going to be number one. And like Pruitt went around the track 35.9 seconds, but he had three passengers in the car. <laughs> it's wild. 
And like, so I finished, I, I actually finished, I got a 37.9. So oh, wow. I was, That's pretty good. so I was like close, to, you know, like within spitting distance of him with three other people in the car. It was literally the best. I enjoyed that more than being out on the track. I find track driving to be very tiring just because there's so much land. There's so many ways that you can just go really, really yeah. hurt yourself. Especially I would imagine in the rain, that's another level right there. Like you really have to be ultra focused when you're on the track. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you're doing the autocross, like what's the worst that's going to happen? You're going to spin out, right. you're going to knock over some cones, right? but like you could die out there on the track. Right? No, literally. And that was Atlanta motor. I'm sorry. Road Atlanta is a fairly technical track. Like it's very little straightaway and a lot of like twists and turns. And mm -hmm. specifically, like there's a point where when you kind of like come out of the pit and like you kind of like go up the hill and then you come down the hill and you get ready for a hairpin turn. And if you don't have the car loaded up the right way, there there were a couple times where the car does rotate and move a little bit. And so like the first couple laps, you are like I was like, oh, I'm 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 gonna die. Like I'm gonna yeah. die. Like a ton of respect and appreciation for the LC and the platform and especially the tires and everything. But like you get used to that little bit of rotation. You understand how it feels. And I think probably sounds trite to say, but like more and more you get used to the limit of the car. But mm -hmm. yeah, you definitely have this sense when you're flying around the track and especially like it is pouring, pouring rain. And at some point, like you can barely see the car in front of you and you just hope nobody hits their brakes. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> oh, man, but it was oh, so fun. It was yeah. so fun. And yeah. the other crazy part, some of these LCs were like some of these LCs had less than 100 miles on them yeah, and they were new. being abused, yeah. Yeah, like destroyed. abused yeah, at yeah. this track. Um, and I just was like, you know, man, I feel bad for this car. Can I have it? <laughs> <laughs> well, when I did it, it was at uh, Laguna Seca. Mm -hmm. We were partnered up in the car on the track driving. And my partner was, uh, her name was uh, Joy Higa. And she was like a retired motorcycle racer, like who was like intimately familiar with this track, like mm. knew this track. And she was like, she was thinking about by maybe buying an LC 500 and she was like I felt like nauseous in yeah. the car with her because like she knew what she was doing. Yep. But it wasn't like she knew what she was doing and she was like dialing it back because she was like with somebody else. She was like going for it. And I just find that so tiring to be in a car like that. And I mean, people love it and yep. it's fun for, it is fun for the first little bit Yeah. as you, you know, acclimatize yourself to a track. But after a while, it's just like, okay, I just want to go do the autocross. Like I got to shave some seconds off. Yep. And then one more thing on this. Did they have that machine? It was like you had to hit the like little uh, lights. Did they have that? I don't think so. They oh. had this machine. It was for like, um, it's like a training exercise for uh, race car drivers. It's almost like whack-a-mole, like vertical whack-a-mole. And you have to hit these lights. And That's it's cool. like, yeah, it was really cool. And it was like watching uh, Scott Pruitt do that. It was like, uh, <laughs> it was like Obi-Wan Kenobi. Like it was like yeah. crazy, just like Zen master, right? Like, and like, we talked about this, you know, these people are just so, they have a special gift mm -hmm, and for sure. it's just really amazing to kind of be involved and be able to see that, you know, right head on. You definitely walk away with it with an appreciation for it being a sport, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, I think I've even kind of like talked some shit on here about how my dad loves NASCAR yeah. and I remember growing up like I was like what in the hell is this 
<laughs> but like, I mean, especially, you know, especially more involved endurance racing, all that stuff. Like it's a sport for sure. And like listening yeah. to Scott talk about his experience and, you know, the things that he's done over the years, the championships and the trophies that he's won. And then when you get out on the track and you, especially when you're in a heat with other people, that's where you start to realize that like it is skill that makes yeah. the difference. Oh yeah, <laughs> so. for sure. Do you guys have roundabouts? In, yes. Uh, so I'm always doing the lines on roundabouts. Always, <laughs> always trying to hit the lines on the roundabout because oh it's, God. I do it all the time. It's one of those moments when I always, rem it always reminds me about how much track racing I've done. Because whenever I hit a mm -hmm. roundabout, I'm like, okay, here we go. Lock Break. in. This is my moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to show everybody. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, shit. That's funny. So actually, there was also an off-road event that was taking place at the same time. I wasn't able to go to that one. Hmm. But it does remind me that I think you wanted to revisit some discussion about the new LX. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, I, I think... I think that the LX came out late last year, went through a bit of a lull while we waited for the reviews to come out and they all came out and they were tepid. Mm -hmm. And now we're seeing um, reviews, more in-depth reviews, you know, outlets outside of, you know, the, the core, you know, motor trend, car and driver. One of the things that it's really brought to mind is how ill-fitting the LX is as the Lexus flagship. SUV because I don't necessarily know that it compares well to other brand flagships, you know. And when I say that, I'm talking about the upper level SUV flagships, which to me would be Escalade, uh, Navigator. Help me out here. GLS, like 580, X7. Yeah. yeah. So because it really brings to light the way that Lexus has always done the LX and how it's always been paired with the Land Cruiser and how the Land Cruiser is kind of a unique vehicle and how when you buy a Land Cruiser, you don't really look at those other vehicles mm -hmm. because you want a Land Cruiser because either you buy a Land Cruiser or you buy a, a Range Rover that's going to break down. Right. Truly. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I or you buy or you buy a G-Wagon like those are very special vehicles. And it's just a real shame to see the LX having to go up against these, you know, I just read a review where they were comparing it against the Grand Wagoneer. Mm, I read that and, one too. Yeah. I mean, there were issues with the review. I, I didn't like, like they were talking about like the price and they were driving like the ultra luxury LX and comparing it against the top level uh, Grand Wagoneer. And mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's, that doesn't even make any sense to me. Uh, but at its core, it did bring up this idea like, you know, the LX doesn't really compete well against these other flagship uh, SUVs. Yeah. We talked about this a little bit last time and it's the exact point that you made, which was for a long time, the Land Cruiser was kind of in a class of one and people just bought Land Cruisers. And yeah. in the amount of time that took to redesign the Land Cruiser and have a new one, the world has changed. Yeah, <laughs> that really like has. that that category and that class has changed a lot. And so it almost feels to me a little bit like this LX is more like a Land Cruiser and we're still sort of waiting for an LX. And maybe it's yeah. like, if anything, the Sequoia feels like the LX. And I think that's the hard part, too, because when you look at the competition, you know, the X7 and the GLS are unibody, so they're a little bit different. You have the Escalade, which, you know, GM throws their V8s in. They have the new Escalade V coming out. 
Mm-hmm. The Navigator Ford has done really well with, but most damning competition for the LX continues to be the Sequoia. And it comes up in every single review. It's not even just the fact of like, oh, the Sequoia has a hybrid. It's the fact that the Sequoia has 437 horsepower. Yeah. And the LX has 409 and the Sequoia has 583 pound feet of torque and the LX has 479. And it's also larger. It's larger. It has a panoramic roof. And I know we it sounds funny to sit here and talk and like go back and forth on these things. But almost every single review of that car. And I think the Edmunds review with the Grand Wagoneer mentioned it. No panoramic roof. No massaging front seats. Yeah. (laughs) All like all those little things that people absolutely expect when they spend one hundred thousand dollars are not even not available they're not there yeah and it really just highlights this this idea like you can't change the fundamental characteristics of the lx Mm -hmm. because it's based entirely on the land cruiser the land cruiser and the lx exist in this bubble that we here in north america can't even really appreciate right because my idea right of of course my idea was well why didn't they just take the sequoia rebadge it as the lx and there there you have it now the lx can compete with the other models on a level playing field but it's because of these markets where the LX sells, you can't cash out on the brand appeal of the LX in those markets. Mm-hmm. You can't just say, we're going to abandon the LX. We're going to rebadge a Sequoia, make it the LX and sell those in those markets. Right. The LX is not for North America. And yeah. at its core, it's a specialized vehicle. And because of that, where you find the value and the appreciation of the LX is in this idea that it's a go anywhere SUV. Like you literally Mm -hmm. can go anywhere and you don't have to worry about it breaking. You don't, there's so much around the mystique of the Land Cruiser and the LX. But when you're not experiencing those limits, on a day-to-day basis, you wonder why did I just pay a hundred thousand dollars for this vehicle? Or you say, oh, I'm gonna go buy an Escalade or I'm gonna buy yeah. an X7. Or- the other thing too that I'm sure that Toyota is aware of, but I guess I wonder how much they're paying attention to it. I see this because I pay a lot of attention to like the Toyota Lexus Land Cruiser and Body on Frame world. But mm-hmm. Ford, like Ford and GM are coming after Toyota and Lexus in the markets where the Land Cruiser is king. Like, yes, you look at um, Australia and South America and you look at some of the new products like the Ford Everest. And of course, you know, they have the Bronco here. But then in the Middle East, like demand for the GMC, like Yukons and stuff like that is getting really big. Like, so, hmm. you know, the world is not static for the LX yeah. and the Land Cruiser. And some of these things are fairly easy to fix, right? Like it's possible, who knows, like the next model year of the LX, they might all of a sudden show up with massaging front seats and a panoramic roof and people might be like, okay, cool. But Mm -hmm. it goes back to the same point again, which is the fact that the world has changed and the LX hasn't changed that much. (laughs) Right. It used to be that you had this like certain portion of the market and a certain portion of of buyers. There's a rugged, there's an off-road element Mm -hmm. to people buying vehicles. And now it's, it it used to be small and now it's huge. Exactly. And I mean, you know, you see the Bronco and I mean, I know that it's not even close to these vehicles that we're talking about, but damn, does it look good? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> the full size Bronco and and that like look is so great and it really it really highlights this problem that Lexus is going to have because what we have is coming out is this TX. We're talking about this TX for what feels like ever. Mm-hmm. Three row crossover. Does that take this position? Is that even possible? We talked about this a bit on text this week yeah. and. 
I'm not saying that they can't do it, but I'm going to be really interested to see how this vehicle comes together, because if it's true that they're planning to use the front wheel drive biased GAK platform, a full size front wheel drive biased like crossover, uh, I'm sure it'll have standard all wheel drive like the NX and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Like we're back in that position again of like there's going to have to be some sort of substantial advancements in engineering and, and like packaging to make that a compelling case. If Lexus is trying to say, OK, cool, now we have something that we can really challenge like the X5 and the X7 or, you know, the GLS. And there's a couple of reasons for that, like based on the trademarks, which I know we'll talk about more in the next podcast. Mm -hmm. We're probably looking at like a four cylinder engine across the lineup with various levels of electrification. Of course, that can work and that can be fine. But I just that's not the Lexus Sequoia that people in North America have been asking for for a long time. That's the issue, because for the TX to fit the bill, I don't necessarily think it can be built off of the same platform as the Highlander. Right. That's why the Sequoia is so appealing, because it's built off of this Land Cruiser platform. And are we talking about the TX like having that that, you know, that heavy, rugged feel that I was talking about? Or is it going to look like an RX? Like, Mm -hmm. And if it looks like an RX, it's not going to be able to compete against these vehicles. Yeah. I mean, if it looks like the RX, it's going to drive like the RX. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's what I mean. Like, there, there is definitely more than looks going on here. It's just, it's, it's going to, ch- the conversation is going to change a lot, I guess, whenever we see it. Because it, where I think where we're at is like, are we talking about the TX being a competitor for like the GLS and the X7? Or are we talking about the TX being a competitor for the MDX and the Enclave? You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and exactly. I, it, yeah, and like, I we'll mean, see what happens, I guess. Yeah. So... Yeah. And it's just really unfortunate that Lexus is in this position where you hate to see a brand having to somehow justify their product decisions. Mm-hmm. And that's where we're at. The LX needs a story that's going to somehow make it appealing to North American buyers. And I just don't know what that story is. Yeah. Lexus will continue to be able to sell everyone still like, you know, in, in, a, in a business sense, like It's almost Mm. like everything we're saying doesn't really matter because they're going to continue selling all of them. But if you take that enthusiast perspective and it's like, I want Lexus to be the best at something. I want Lexus to Mm -hmm. like really throw everything into the LX and say like, you know, BMW, Mercedes, Lincoln, Cadillac, like F you, you know, like that's not that's not what we got. (laughs) But also that's kind of what you expect at the flagship level, in my opinion. I feel like every flagship that comes out has to better all the other ones before it. I just think Mm -hmm. that that's the way that it needs to be at that level. You need to continue to progress. And I just don't know if the LX is as compelling as competitor vehicles. And then when the Sequoia comes out, like, I just do not know. Yeah. I mean, because here we are. I mean, we are we are talking about, you know, Yukons Mm -hmm. and Tahoes and Escalades. Like, that is what the Sequoia is going up against. Yes. And... Those are flagship luxury products. As much as they may not have the badge, they have that position in the market. And it's really difficult to see how Lexus is going to go up against that. But, you know, it kind of comes back to what we were talking about at the beginning. Like all of this just feels like a stopgap mm-hmm. before 2025, the, the next generation IS is coming. And there's no way that that next generation IS is going to be anything but full electric. Yeah. So there we go. Like the beginning of all of this is coming. And what does that mean for all of these other things? Because those other vehicles, they're not going to disappear. I just don't know how Lexus is going to compete on so many different fronts. Yeah, I agree. I guess we'll leave it there. Yeah, I think think that boat wraps it up this week. 
Thanks everybody for joining us and we will talk to you soon. Take care. Bye.